The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. The Leadership Hour. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh to the listeners and um, welcome to the Leadership Hour um, with uh, Ihsan Higgins and um, I've got a very special guest tonight. It's a guest that uh, I've been wanting to interview for a very, very long time. I mean, as you all know, we've been inviting academics, we've been, been inviting politicians, we've been inviting all people that are in leadership positions and... Um, yeah, so tonight we have, I don't actually know a way to put this particular guest tonight, whether he's just a social activist, a political uh, activist, uh, international, I mean, he does everything. So the things I'm not, I'm, we're going to get into that during the program, but I want to say a very, very warm welcome to Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam Nice to be here and nice to be in the studio. <laughs> with the listeners of the Voice of the Cape. I was saying earlier on, you know, I've known you to have so many hats, you know, I've met you whilst you were, uh, well, before you became Premier of the of the Western Cape, but then we called you Premier. And then you became Ambassador, and then we called you Ambassador. So for tonight, uh, I think, uh, is it appropriate for you just to call you Ibrahim? No, that's what um, <laughs> everyone calls me. I wear those titles when I do those jobs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it, it's very important, you know, that people feel comfortable with a guest, you know, and I think our community, you know, when they see people that are well known, that they see on TV, etc., and Angela, you know, but I mean, I want to interview Ibrahim Rasul, the man, you know, the person, the leader, the person that comes from a very strong um, political background as a social activist. And um, yeah, and we're going to speak about, you know, some of your the history and of course, some of the challenges that leaders face, you know, as they go along. And um, so maybe I want to start off with where are you from? I think most people probably know that, but tell everybody else. <laughs> now, where did you grow up, in other words? Well, my formative years, um, like many people, I was born in Peninsula Maternity Hospital. Okay, like, every, like most other like people. Like most other people of my generation, mm-hmm. at Peninsula. That also means that I grew up up till Standard 2, 1972, in District 6, number 34, Ratka Street. Mm. And we were of that generation in 72 that was then removed from District 6. And fortunately, I know one E-day, La Barang Gaji. Two at my pa, heel dag tijd La Barang gespend om my huis te kreef voor ons in Primroospark. Okay, that must have been very far, to, I mean, like for you as no, a young man. That was the better. Yeah, baita, no, baita, baita. no region at the end too. Mm. But, um, but that was where life started for me. I grew up in Primrose Park and then went to the Livingston High School. Primary school first. I started off Sydney Street in District 6 mm-hmm. and then Primrose Park Primary. Okay. It's right opposite where the Primrose Park Masjid is. Yes, that's that, in Qualifant Roadside. That's thereabouts, yeah. Fekeskral mm. Road. Yes. And... Um, we, lots of those bricks for the mosque and the madrasa have our fingerprints on. 
Excellent. Um, because that's what we were busy with: rummage sales on a Saturday morning, cake sales on a uh, on a Saturday in Gatesville, and so forth. And that introduced me because our madrasa also sold the chips at the Cape Malay Choir competitions. Okay, the Varama chips. No, no, no. Oh, the, the normal chips. The Simba chips okay, and the Wallace chips, chips and <laughs> and so forth. Mm. So that's how we raised funds for our madrasa, and that's where every year we were at the Athlone Stadium. Okay, so that is also your, your, your link to the Cape Malay Choir Board. Look, because it's I've just seen you there on a few occasions. Yes, yes, yes. But then I also married the daughter of a captain okay. of one of the teams, but an Inivabot. Okay. The Elsis Rafir Sankur. The Niverboard. Is it easy, Mr. April's board? No, no, no. I was always loyal to Mr. April, but I was in the Niverboard. Okay, now because I was you at Mr. April's event, so that's why I could... Yes, that, so no, that's where we also sold our chips with the old board. Okay, now that has been a very good introduction. We are now going to break for Ishai. For Maghrib, the technicians say, um, So we're going to break for Maghrib, and when we come back, then we're going to go into some of the more current issues, and of course, your the international um, venture that uh, has been so successful over, all over the world. Of the Cape. The Leadership Hour. And we are back with the Leadership Hour. With me I have um, former Ambassador, former Premier um, Ibrahim Rasul. And uh, we're just looking at Ibrahim Rasul, the man, you know, where he's come from, his history, and uh, his present, and where he's going. So uh, we, we've, we we kind of touched on your your history in terms of where you grew up. and what, what school, Did you mention what school you went to? Yeah, no, I said... Um Livingston High School was the high school I went to, and then UCT after that. You didn't go to Treffs? No, 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 no. Livingston was the place to be. Okay. Uh, I always ask that question. Um, the, so then you went to UCT? Yeah. And what, what degree did you do there? I, I started off studying as a teacher, so I did a BA in a higher diploma in education. Okay. And I taught at Spine Road in 1985. Okay. But that was a crucial year to teach because by October the state of emergency was declared and before that of course the school boycotts broke out in July and Spine Road was quite hot in that regard. Who was the principal there at that time? The principal was Dopey Davis Okay. and the teaching corps consisted of people like Riyad Najjar and Junaid Darcy who became the principal, became the principal. Yeah. and it was really 1985 was really the generation of teachers who were born out of the 1980s school boycott Okay. and there was a major influx of those activists into the schools okay so so interestingly so so you taught how long well i was employed for a year okay. but i effectively taught for six months because then the boycotts broke out mm -hmm. and then i was in my first stint in victor Verstair prison okay. in october until january and when i came out in january i received a telegram i don't know if people still know what a telegram is but it simply said your services as a teacher are no longer required and that was how i was sacked by Alan Hendrickson. <laughs> oh my goodness, Mr. Utenig. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Utenig. <laughs> okay, so what struck me, when I actually read an account of that at some, some way, I couldn't know where I read it, but 
when you were locked up in Victor Vestere, in that in that journal you wrote that you only had a Quran with you. And you read the Quran cover to cover in English and in Arabic. Well, that was that correct? <laughs> I wasn't kept too long in 1985, but from 2000, uh, 1987 to 88 mm. was when I was in Polsmoor prison and almost half a year of it was in solitary confinement oh. where I only had the the Quran. I'm surprised they gave you even a Quran. That no. time they were quite keen just to give a Bible. It was it was fairly statutory that they had to give you a scripture. I, I, but they only allowed the Quran without commentary. So my father had to find a Yusuf Ali translation okay. that had no commentary. And so to stay sane and to stay Alive and strong in prison, I developed an entire program around the Quran. I, after Fajr, tried to read the Quran many times over. Khatamul Quran. Mm-hmm. I did Khif's lessons for myself. I did the, uh, for me, what was for me a tafsir of the Quran with a little nub of a big pin that I had on the margins of the Quran. And then I started on toilet paper. Mm. Um, I started to do an index of the Quran. So all the verses with regard to justice, all the verses with regard to peace, war, love, mercy, I put them... You still have it. You know, when I came out of prison, (laughs) I was very lazy one night. I left my bag with the Quran and all those notes in a briefcase in the car. They broke into the car, stole it, and I was really sad. I searched for it. It was very ironic that the day I finished as premier, when we packed out the store, mm-hmm. someone had returned the Quran. Mm. Someone. Someone who stole it, returned it, and we packed it up. And that Quran is still with me, but the notes and the index, that has mm-hmm. never been found again. Well, I'm sure it it meant a a lot. I mean, especially, I don't think anybody has that anymore, but uh, if anybody has it and they're listening, (laughs) please return it. (laughs) Okay, so Ibrahim, after that, you, okay, after 1985, and of course, uh, I believe that Mandela also requested your audience, or or, I know that you, you met with him at some point. Look, it was very strange because one day the warden came to me and said, um, Rasul, trek an, je gaan hospital toe. En hij proefde, hij zei, nee, ik is al rijd. Hij zei, nee, nee, ik kom net samen. En dan walk me down and we went to the, to the hospital section. And he said to me, as he opened the waiting room door, he said, go inside and if anyone speaks to you, don't speak loudly. Hmm. And then I saw this man that looked familiar. And the picture I had was of, a, of Mandela was a round face with a middle path. Like the like the spray paint we used to use. Yes, like the spray paint okay. we used. That was the picture in my mind. Mm. But this one was a far longer face, less stout, no middle path. But I knew it was Nelson Mandela. And I was just amazed that this man had asked the warden, who turned out to be Sergeant Brandt, mm-hmm. who is at the Mandela um, Gateway Center. Yes. And sacked because people they found out his association and his help for us mm-hmm. over that period. And so so that was how I met Matiba for the first time. And he actually knew about the work of the Call of Islam and how the Muslims were rising against apartheid. And he wanted to know how was this possible because 
his idea of Muslims was sometimes that we isolated ourselves and here we were just getting into the struggle and we were showing bravery beyond our numbers. And, and, he, and, and he knew all this despite he, being in detention. Dis, despite being in prison, this mm. man knew who we were. And when he came out of prison, one of the first things he did was he did a 14-state visit through Africa to thank Africa for their anti-apartheid support. And he asked me to accompany him. Mm. And on that journey, I would never forget it. That's the journey I met Gaddafi, Mubarak, the FLN leadership in Algeria, etc., etc. Just on our, all our visits. That's quite a, yeah, that, yeah, that in itself is quite a, a, something for the CV. <laughs> yeah. And for the memoirs. Funny, I'd, I actually have a, a, at, the, at the Cape Malay art exhibition a painting of yourself with Mandela at the Tanabaru. Do you, do you remember that? No, I remember, I remember that. Nelson Mandela insisting on his, on his um, freedom. Mm-hmm. He wanted to visit the old... In fact, he went to visit the Owal Masjid, I think, yes. after his inauguration. But he wanted to go because he had visited the Kramat of Sheikh Madura on Robin Island. On Robin Island. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about the peace he got there and, of course, some of the briyani that was left mm-hmm. there for <laughs> the prisoners. But he spoke about the humbling effect of mm-hmm. visiting the shrine of Sheikh Madura because he realized that he wasn't the first prisoner mm. on Robben Island that it goes back hundreds of years okay. that he was following in the footsteps and that I think that realization meant that we had a leadership of our country that understood the role of Islam and Muslims mm. which, which I think people tend to forget I mean uh, the majority of, of South Africans somehow don't understand that um, that contribution by the Muslims. No, and, 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 and what that contribution meant in the minds of the majority. You know, when I went overseas in America and so forth, the current generations of Indian Arab Muslims in America have cut themselves off from the African-American components mm. of Islam because of doctrinal differences. Mm. Because they said, no... Um, the, 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 the Elijah Muhammad was an orthodox Muslim. They didn't recite properly. Mm. And so what they did was, by being snobbish about Islam, mm. they actually cut themselves off from a religion that was there 400 years ago. Islam in America was the second monotheism mm. in the Western Hemisphere. Okay. And Islam, if it connected with that impulse it would be an indigenous religion not a foreign one yeah but of course you know with with, with all these um, anti-islamic uh, sentiments you know it, it is it is big it, it is portrayed as a foreign uh, yes. type of religion yet i mean uh, i actually never thought about it that yeah islam could be 400 years old in, in america yes no, no it is yeah so that's what I'm saying. It's quite interesting. Why don't you think about these things? Because the media hypes it up as a, as a religion that comes from the Middle East. So one of the last things I did at the Adams Masjid in, in Washington, D.C., was to lead a Salatul Janaza Bil Ghaib in absentia for, the, for some of the slaves that had perished mm. and may not have had the full rights of yes. 
a Muslim janaza recited upon them. And so now it's a tradition that some mosques continue to do it. They first do it for the slaves who died on the ships, then the slaves who died on plantations, then the slaves who died trying to escape. So alhamdulillah, I think that we are teaching in America the reconnection with the whole of the history of the ummah. Okay, but now let's just return to the Cape a little bit. <laughs> the, you, you became premier. I mean, it was obviously uh, quite an achievement. Um, you know, there were so many candidates that the ruling party at the time could have chosen. Why did they go for a person that hails from 1.6% of the entire South African community as premier for the Western Cape? Look, I think that um, for one, we were living in an ANC that looked at the quality of your contribution and not at the use in your heritage. Your ethnicity. Your ethnicity, your race, or whatever the case may mm. be. Okay. Um, I also think that within that, my own contribution to both the UDF through the Call of Islam and the ANC had stood out, and so I had been elected as chairperson of the ANC. A completely democratic thing before we even came to premier. Okay, so interestingly, you mentioned that you were part of, an, of a movement, of an organization that looked beyond ethnicity, that looked beyond race. That was 23 years ago, if I, if I remember correctly, when you became premier. But now what's happening today? Is that still the prevailing attitude? Is it, um, has there been changes? Where, 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 where are things at now? Now you must remember historically the ANC had been the home of the Yusuf Dadus, the Mulvi Kachalias, mm. the Ismail Mirs, the Fatima Mirs, Amina Kachalia, all of them, Dr. Abdurrahman, the mm. ANC had been home for them because they excelled in their struggle credentials and their willingness to sacrifice. I think that generally today we need to understand non-racialism not as a historical philosophy but as a current reality that we need to, to continue to achieve um, in, in South Africa. I think that if I look at the last 10 years, it hasn't only been bad for the ANC in terms of corruption and nepotism and the Zuma years, but non-racialism has also been a casualty of the last 10 years. Ends my question. So, so what's different now? No, I think that clearly that there are some who wouldn't want to, when, it com when they compete for tenders, they wouldn't want to compete against a brown face mm. if they can advance themselves with a blacker face. Okay. So I think that we have opened up to that kind of opportunism, and I'm hoping that that's the kind of thing that someone like Cyril Ramaphosa, who's the architect of our constitution, can return us to. Well, that, that's of course what everybody believes, and I mean, look, we've had, in fact, we've had a few other people that also from the ANC that's been on, on, on the show, and it bodes well. It seems like that non-racial um, approach, you know, is apparent, but of course one will never know until we see the results of what, what's going to happen in the next few months. So we're just going to go for a, for a quick ad break, and when we come back, I'm going to be talking about uh, the, the, the world for all, which I know that you've been, you've been the architect of. 
Welcome to Ilya Laser Hair and Beauty Spa. At Ilya, we have the fastest and most effective laser hair removal technology in the world. Get rid of that unwanted hair permanently and painlessly. We promise you that our rates are the best in Cape Town. You can also spoil yourself at our spa for your hair, skin and beauty needs. Find us on Kromboom Road under the Crawford Bridge after Shell Garage next to Arabian Nights Restaurant. Phone Ilya... And we are back with the uh, Leadership Hour, Ixan Higgins here, and um, for those who just joined us, and um, I've got with me a former Premier, former Ambassador, Ibrahim Rasul, and we are talking leadership and uh, the route to leadership. Now, Ibrahim, route to leadership is one thing. Um, then, of course, leaders, they, they construct certain legacy projects. And uh, the construct of your legacy project after you, you, you left the premiership, and I mean, we're going to get to your stint in, uh, in the United States, or maybe it, it ties in with your stint in the United States, where this very progressive organization called World for All actually emanated from. Tell us a little bit about that. Look, the World for All Foundation is a continuation of my premiership when we called the Western Cape a home for all mm -hmm. and it was precisely to embed that non-racialism yeah. where we said that the Western Cape was home for Africans, coloreds and Indians and and whites and out of that um, when I finished my time as premier um, we decided what do I do and we, be we became quite enamored with the idea of creating a world for all foundation and this foundation has then been my kind of global vehicle it's the one that took me alongside my ambassadorship did work in the united states of america did work in europe against extremism we were able for example to help with the mediation with the libyans um, with the syrian um, free army, etc. And, 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 and it even took me right to the heart of Tahrir Square in Egypt in the period that Mursi was being elected as president. I sat there for three days in Cairo mm. at the Muqatta advising the Brotherhood about what to avoid when they take over governance using the South African lessons both from the Mandela era in statecraft as well as the way in which Muslims had located themselves in South Africa. So, Alhamdulillah, I have many friends that are still in the jails of Egypt um, that my heart goes out to. But that's the kind of work that the World for All Foundation has been doing. But one of the very significant things that we've done is to host in 2013 a global Muslim Minorities Leaders Forum in Paris where 22 different minority leaders came together from all over um, the world, including Sheikh Siraj Hendricks and others from, from, from Cape Town, and we were able to discuss what is this paradigm of of the Azavia. Okay, yeah. Okay. And so, 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 that's the kind of thing, and that's a book that I think is being published right at this moment and should be launched quite soon. It's called Living Where We Don't Make the Rules. Okay. A guide for Muslim minorities. Wow. When will, when will this book. Uh, it is being published in London at this moment, and as soon as I get 
past this election, uh, we should be launching that book, inshallah. Okay, excellent. You also mentioned another book. There was another book. Yeah, it's it's a book that is called Finding the Aqaba, the Steep Path, the path between dogma and fury. Because I think the Muslim condition is governed by, on the one hand, our adherence to dogma, mm-hmm. inflexibility, and on the other hand, fury, anger. Okay. That drives extremism. So those two books will be available very soon. The second one, I need to do some editing and then get it to the publishers in London. I also wanted to ask you what we saw quite a bit on the news and on your interaction with Obama, with President, former President Obama. I mean, how, was, how did that come about? Look, I think that it was the one thing I always joke that made Jacob Zuma look at me again <laughs> after we voted against him at Polokwane. But he realized the day Obama was elected as president of the United States um, and became president in 2009, that was really the time um, when it came to light that Obama had been to Cape Town in 2006. I was one of the people he met, and so I was asked to go to Washington. And in Washington, I think that um, he was president, I was ambassador, and... um, and, 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 and very clearly, it just meant that we could negotiate a few things for South Africa better, like the African Growth and Opportunities Act mm. that gave us free trade access to the U.S. market. Secondly, PEPFAR, the AIDS funding, um, and those kind of things that I think we were able to, to get right for South Africans. Okay, well, that, that okay, now let's get to the part where I know that you've done a lot of lectures you know on the middle road tell us a little bit about this middle road i know that you you you've, lots of people have heard about this middle road and i know world for all your in your lectures you've you've really come out very very strongly in terms of that middle road look i think that the truth of the matter is that when you're in the middle you can't fall off the edge <laughs> and you can't lose your balance. Okay. I think that the difficulty with lots of communities, including the Muslim community, is that our anger has sometimes taken us so far to the extremes. Mm-hmm. And, but we are called in the Quran, we are described as an ummatan wasatan, an ummah that is in the middle, not moderate, because there are some things that you must get angry about. Mm. An ummah that is balanced. Okay. An ummah that retains its instinct for justice, even if it is against ourselves, or even if others provoke anger in you, you are not meant to lose your sense of justice. And so it's a very onerous road, this middle ground, that I think we need to be able to hold. That's when Islam is at its best. And the Prophet ﷺ warns us, that anyone who is extreme with our religion, our religion will destroy them. And that, I think, is unfortunately the story that many are able to tell. So I think that what we need to do is to recenter um, the ummah, how to avoid extreme dogma and how to avoid extremism um, in the way in which we go forward. And alhamdulillah, I think that I've been involved, for example, with the Qatar Center, um, in Atlanta, where we have taken ulama from both Tunisia, Morocco, and, 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 and Libya on the one hand, 
And on the other hand, we have taken young ulama from France, Belgium, um, and, 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 and other places in Europe. The one contributing extremists, the other one suffering from extremists. And we have worked with them over many, many sessions in order for them to find a center that I think is the comfortable place from which to drive the Islamic project. Now, I think we're going to go for a break. Now, just before we go, uh, for those people that are listening uh, still, um, and for those who joined us, we're talking about uh, the whole concept of the middle road of Islam. And of course, I think the youth today, they are struggling with that middle road. They are struggling with the potential for assimilation or the potential for extremism. And I think that middle road is possibly what people... In fact, the, the, the rest of the world, they're probably all looking at South Africa because the Muslims in South Africa, or rather towards the Cape, they've always followed that middle road. I think we're going to examine that a little bit more, especially the dangers of, of assimilation and the dangers of extremism you know, for our young people out there. The Leadership Hour. So, uh, yeah, we're back with, uh, we've got uh, former Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul sitting uh, with me in studio and we're talking about some of uh, some leadership issues. Uh, Ibrahim, just tell us quickly, uh, with regard to the challenges we face with the youth today who feel that assimilation into a culture that's foreign to, to Muslims, you know, even in the Cape, you know, how do we deal with that? whole thing of assimilation and how did other jurisdictions deal with this type of thing look when I speak about coexistence that's the generic term coexistence how do we exist with others I always say that there are three models of coexistence there's the isolation model where Muslims are on their own like in Birmingham their spice shop is there the masjid is there, the madrasas is there, even the khutbah is in Bangla, and they don't need to become anything else because they are blissfully isolated. Mm -hmm. The alternative, the extreme to that, is assimilation. The root of assimilation is the word same, to become the same. That's what France and them want. They want Muslims, when you come into their country, to leave your religion, your culture, your cuisine at the border, and to become French. Mm. Now that is not a way forward because that's creating extremism amongst Muslims in France. America may be much the same, it demands you only speak English, etc., etc. South Africa in 94, our constitution actually advances an alternative to both of those, it's called integration. The heart of the word integration is integrity. How does the nation's integrity get respected by the part? And how does the nation respect the integrity of the part, in this case Muslims? So we have a situation in South Africa where we are happily South Africans. Many of us, when the Springboks play, we cheer them. We are proudly South African and we enjoy our country. In the same way, we often feel that our government respects us as Muslims, our integrity as Muslims, because it allows us Jumu'ah, it gives us off on Eid, um, it makes provision for halal food, it allows us to dress what we want to, and there's very little Islamophobia at the airports and so forth. So what we have is, for as long as those two integrities, the nations and 
Islams is respected, we have equilibrium and coexistence that is happy in our society. So what w- South Africans are advancing in the world is this idea of integration rather than becoming the same as in assimilation or isolation, holding ourselves different and away. I think that there are tendencies today to isolate <laughs> from others. And I think that the consequence of that is that others may say, we better get these Muslims to assimilate. Otherwise, there's no place for them. I think we must maintain that middle ground, that middle way where integration and the respect for the mutual integrities is assured. Okay, so I think that's good. I think especially for, for, from the, the young people's perspective, you know, where they believe that, you know, the kind of Islam that was practiced in, in, in the Cape, you know, is maybe a bit outdated and that they want to... Because remember before we had schools like Livingston, like Treffs, like... like etc and you, you were within your own community your own culture now of course we have schools like the Westerfords and the bishops and things where, where they the young people are challenged you know with this uh, potential for assimilation I think that's one of the, the challenges we're gonna have but we also have Muslim private schools which if they are not consciously on a path of integration may isolate excellence and create the politics of envy Mm. Say, oh, there those Muslims are on their own. They getting all the A's. They going to university. I don't think we want the politics of envy, and so we must wait. We must always maintain a vigilant middle way in the way in which we approach these things. We were, we, I could actually interview you for the next three hours, but I mean, I know that your time is valuable, and of course, we've got another program after this. But I want to check, as a leader, I mean, as a leader that was a, was a long track record in our, in, you know, in our midst, um, you face challenges. And I mean, I've seen some of the challenges over the years, and you've dealt with it with grace. And the latest challenge was the one of this wedding that went viral. Have you got any any comment on that? No, look, I think that um, we had a daughter who fell in love with a wonderfully kind, loving, decent, peaceful human being. He was Hindu. Mm -hmm. He adopted the Shahada. But he has a whole family that is Hindu. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do a thorough examination about what would be culturally affirming for the Hindus. And I think that the MGC statement speaks, for example, about the efforts that were made to sanitize those kind of cultural things as we go further. And Alhamdulillah, I'm very happy for that. This is something that we did privately that worked for our situation. I've not gone to say everyone must do this, Mm. but I certainly did that. I think that what we have had is, and I don't mind getting flack from extremists because I get that every day. That's the check that I'm still on the right path when extremists spew their hatred at me um, and so forth. I'm just very happy that when a middle ground sat down and looked at what had happened, they found no kufr, they found no shirk, and they found that um, every effort was made to make sure, and of course there can be no Hindu ritual because there was lo- no Lord Ganesh, there was no Goddess Shiva mm. and that I was present that, and so forth. You see, because some people obviously caught up in the moment, 
they saw certain things on social media and of course you know the, Look, the but, feeding frenzy started but in this case um, Ihsan there was this issue of a Hindu mm-hmm. if we continue to live in this open non-racial society our children are going to fall in love with Kosas and Zulus mm-hmm. my wife jokes that if our daughter had fallen in love with a Zulu man we would have had a Zulu dance, except we may have said put on a bra. Um, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that that is the future. We cannot forever. Well, we've had it with Mandela Mandela. That's exactly where, where it. That, uh, where his mm-hmm. wife had to go to the Eastern Cape. When we go on a frenzy, what signal are we sending out to others that even if you become Muslim, you will be vilified? Mm. Anyway, we are very pleased, uh, Ibrahim Rasul that your Islamic principles are intact no, and that and that despite what the, the, the and that's why I spoke about this issue of the middle road where people become extremists and they want to vilify calling people kufar calling people all sorts of things that I think you know sometimes people just need to understand the facts yeah. and once they understand the, and, and hearing it from the horse's mouth because I, I do think that you were a bit silent on this whole issue. I mean, no, sometimes, you know, sometimes there are two reasons for silence. You are silent because you don't know enough, mm-hmm. or you are silent because you are too angry. Yeah. And in the latter case, if I had allowed myself to speak during that time, my anger would have overwhelmed my rationality. Mm-hmm. I may have made enemies that I should not have made. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, the vow of silence that we took during this period was a very, very important one because you may have said something that could have irrevocably broken relationships. But Alhamdulillah, Allah has guided us through this. Mm-hmm. And I am very thankful for people who come up to me in the street and say, Mubarak for your daughter. It's a silent way of saying that we understand who you are and we trust you because, and, and some people say it, that you were Muslim even when you had to go to prison. Mm-hmm. And, and that for me was a very, very important signal that people continue to send. Um, to me. I guess that is just part of the challenges that leaders have to go through and of course we are very pleased as a community, you know, that we have, you know, people of the caliber, you know, that you display, you know, in, whether it's whether it's international issues, whether it's local issues. But for now, I believe we need leaders like you right here. In the inshallah, <laughs> inshallah, I will continue to play that role as long as as it is a useful and constructive role, inshallah. I would like to, 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 to interview you again at some point and we can deal with some of the more intrigue. I mean, tonight was a little interview. Yeah, yeah, yes, sir. I, I was very, I was very uh, soft on you. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think, uh, it, and in that spirit, I think we should carry on, you know, you must carry on with your good work. And I think um, at some point we're going to deal with the more intricate issues in the community. There's a lot of issues. There's the issues of the, the, the matrasas now being closed by certain uh, entities there's a question of the mosques and you know those are the real issues that's affecting our communities and i think um, we, we're going to bring you back on and maybe closer to to the election time we'll deal more with the political aspect of of, of ibrahim rasul inshallah and uh, we ibrahim rasul is taking this community should you be successful in uh, in, 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 the, in the elections 
And uh, but for now, shukran very much for coming, and uh, we, we really appreciate your input. Ihsan, thank you very much to you, to the voice of the Cape, and to all your listeners. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and reward you for all the efforts that you make, and to the community. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Live from Cape Town, this is the voice of the Cape. 91.3